Hello, my name is Alan Mulhern. Welcome to the bi-weekly podcast series, The Quest. Our current mini-series is the Crises of Our Times, which focuses on the evolving interconnected systemic crises. I hope to deal with the theoretical aspects of the crises of capitalism next time. This episode will focus on the European Union, the EU, whose evolving crisis, should it implode into a banking collapse, can well trigger a global financial crisis. Those who follow these podcasts will be aware that I have maintained that the pandemic is triggering a global Great Depression, which has already begun, which in its turn triggers the evolving financial crisis, which also has already begun. The EU, as among the most important economies in the world, is at the centre of this crisis. Let us examine it more closely. The European Union is supposedly based on the rule of law. It has no constitution but is founded on treaties approved democratically by all EU member countries. That's the theory. The EU has a collective GDP, gross domestic product, of around 18 trillion euros, which is 22% of the world economy, an output a little below that of the United States, and around the same as China, depending on the measure used. It is a federation resembling the United States to a certain extent. In some cases, the distribution of power between central governments and states is similar, and in other cases, it is different. It has a legislature, executive and judiciary, and numerous ministries or departments, like other governments. The members of the European Parliament are voted in from member countries. The President is elected from the European Council, not directly from the people, as in the United States. The EU has its own currency, though this is optional, with 19 of the 27 countries adopting it. The EU has almost as many languages as there are countries. Unlike the US, the members of the EU can legally exit the Union, as the UK has just done. The individual states have also been able to run up their own debts, which are now rocketing in the pandemic crisis. The EU has a dependence on a United States military shield, which may not last much longer. The European Union has also engaged in a rapid expansion of the number of its member states, which have no common language or culture uniting them. It has a number of Achilles' heels, including the immigration question, the great weakness of its banking system, as well as some deep structural weaknesses, of which its currency union is one that we shall explore today. Some of these features, for example, the allowance of individual states to rack up their own debts, the ability to leave the union, the sheer difference in culture and background, the weak banking system are proving very problematic currently. This is of importance to other countries because if, some would say when, the European banking system collapses, it will immediately pass to the UK and the United States as Europe holds the largest concentration of global, systemically important banks. Their asset value is the equivalent of 300% of the European Union GDP and they are deeply interlinked with banks all over the world. The impact of the collapse of this system 
would cross the Atlantic like a tsunami. My focus today is only on one crucial aspect of the European Union, its monetary policy. Now, I know this doesn't excite the imagination or arouse passionate responses, but nevertheless it goes to the core of economics, the European Union and also the problems of the modern world. When we come to examine the psychological malaise of our times, this topic of monetary policy is crucial in that exploration and it will be one of the few times you will have heard a psychological commentary on the core of economics, monetary theory and policy. So this is vital prep. Like most unions, the EU has done well in times of economic expansion. Its central project has been to bury the hatchet of past grievances that resulted in terrible wars and create a prosperous union united by trade, currency, freedom of movement of capital, goods and labour. In other words, to get quite close to being a single country, but to retain certain critical national autonomies. However, that central project, the prosperity project, you might term it, is in great difficulty. And in times of crisis, the Union is threatened with the exit of member countries, and it has adopted the solution of subsidising them financially by one means or another. The European Union is in deep legal trouble, as I shall explain in a moment, and it is using monetary policy to try to save itself from breakup, to push for further power at the centre, to continually bail out the crippled financial system, and to accommodate weaker states who threaten to leave. Monetary policy has become a highly important tool of politics. Unfortunately, in a world of hyper-Keynesian economics, almost everyone's mindset has altered in favour of infinite debt and money creation. The global lessons of past and present inflations, destructions of currencies and the inevitable ruin of economies are forgotten. Frederick Hayek wrote a simple but immensely important book during World War II called The Road to Serfdom in which he argued that increasing state control of the economy and its monetary instruments is the road to totalitarianism. The growing opposition of member countries in the EU to the European Parliament and Commission is not only the result of far-right groups who are ruining the democratic project, more and more countries are outraged by the undermining of the democratic agreements of the Union by unpopular and sometimes illegal measures by the European authorities and central bank. Thus, nationalist and populist sentiment can coincide. In the case of immigration, these policies are fairly easy to see the results of and can be unpopular, especially in recession, and therefore arouse populist reaction. In the case of monetary policy, they are far more difficult to see or even understand. For example, many of the recent monetary policies infringe the democratically agreed treaties of the European Union, you may be surprised to hear. They also place the European Union in great economic danger and weaken the economic and financial system. 
they also become unpopular in the stronger and less indebted states when they are required to provide monetary transfers to the weaker states. Sound money is as important as sound law. Without them, the fabric of society disintegrates. I will now explain these points and request your patience, for monetary policy is at the heart of every society and there is no proper understanding of the contemporary crisis without wrestling with these ideas. For extra reading, I highly recommend, firstly, a recent easy-to-read and brilliant 2018 publication called The Bitcoin Standard by Safedine Amos, especially chapters 4 to 7. Secondly, the exceptional blog and YouTube videos of Thomas Malinen on the gnseconomics.com website. And thirdly, Frederick Hayek's classic 1944 book, The Road to Serfdom. I put these references on the text preamble to this episode and also in the philosophy section of my website www.alanmulhern.com There have been a number of milestones on this road of monetary accommodation and I believe they are the path of the European Union to severe financial crisis, if not collapse. The Stability and Growth Pact, SGP, of the European Union, brought into force in 1998, is an agreement among the 27 member states of the European Union to maintain the stability of the Economic and Monetary Union, based on Articles 121 and 126, by each member state aiming to stay within the limits on government deficits, no more than 3% of GDP, and national debt, no more than 60% of GDP. And in case of having a debt level above 60%, reducing it every year. Fines of 0.5% of GDP can be inflicted for those remaining above these levels. The average national debt of European Union countries in March 2020 was around 80% of GDP. And it is rising at an exceptional rate during the extended pandemic crisis. An average of 100% will be reached shortly. Countries currently at the top end include Greece at 180%, Italy 140% of GDP, Portugal at a national debt of 120% of GDP, Belgium at 108%, France 103% and Spain at 100%. So, many countries have been breaking EU laws and agreements. No fines have been issued. Article 123 of the European Union states that overdraft or credit facilities to member governments or institutions with the European Central Bank or with the central banks of the member states shall be prohibited, as shall the purchase directly from them by the European Central Bank or national central banks of debt instruments. And Article 125 states, the Union shall not be liable for or assume the commitments of central governments, regional, local or other public authorities of any member state. It could not be clearer. When the EU was created, it was agreed that no country 
would have to share the debts of others. Mutual fiscal responsibility was not supposed to happen. You weren't supposed to share debts. Also, Article 310 states that the European Union budget cannot be deficit financed. It can't cover expenses with debt. In 2010-12, Greece, Spain, Portugal and Ireland were in excessive debt. German and French banks and governments were worried because of their heavy lending to these countries. So they created a bailout fund, the European Finance Stability Facility, which issued debt backed by the Eurozone countries and gave loans with conditions for structural reforms, which included cutting pensions and social security. These were tremendously unpopular in Greece. In particular, German and French banks bailed out the Greek banking sector. This breaks Article 123. In this event, less indebted countries bailed out the more indebted. Besides breaking the law, such transfers do not create recovery and have not done so. Taking money from the more productive to give it to the less almost always has a less productive outcome. Unsurprisingly, this has led to the rise of nationalist opposition parties in many countries to the European Union. These are a reaction to the European government breaking its own laws and overriding the original agreements of the EU, as well as the anger at having to subsidise other countries, possibly indefinitely. In 2015, the European Union followed the example of the United States and a vast programme of QE, quantitative easing, began, whereby the enormously weak euro banking structure was propped up. The banks were flooded with cheap money from the ECB, the European Central Bank. This further weakened, if not zombified, the financial sector like a sick patient being kept on support systems and everybody hoping for a recovery. Yet it becomes clearer that without the support system, the patient is dead. The ECB giving credit facilities to institutions of member countries, in this case their banks, breaks Article 123. In 2020, the European Union created the Recovery Fund, the latest of such mechanisms, by which it, the European Union, issues debt and gives grants and loans without conditions and without demand for structural reform through the budget of the European Union to indebted countries, particularly Spain, Italy and Greece, thus breaking Article 310 and 125. Their excuse is that these articles do not apply in economic emergencies. One wonders, therefore, what laws are for. So now there is an illegal transfer union. Of course, this temporarily stabilises weak indebted countries, as if that is a worthy excuse to break the founding laws of the union. But once again, such palliatives do nothing for economies in such a state, since their problems are totally structural. Extraordinary money creation for decades in Japan has not created any growth at all, but has simply maintained stagnation, the status quo. 
throwing money at a rigid economy with great problems of corruption and inefficiency raises consumption, creates malinvestment, increases the parasitic sense of entitlement, maintains a completely distorted sense of economics and creates tremendous moral hazard encouraging institutions, people and governments to continue with their bad practices. But the more serious damage is the increase in debt, which is simply ignored and passed onto the future, where it is hoped that inflation will diminish the size of the debt and the cost is borne by those who suffer the inflation. This is a similar story in America and China. We have therefore all the ingredients for a great global crash, actually caused at the core of the system by central banks and their monetary policy. And this is exactly what happened in the 1920s, in the lead-up to the Great Crash of 1929 and the subsequent Depression, as well as many other times in history. The idea of the latest recovery fund of 2020, called the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Programme, came from French and German leaders because, once again, their banks had lent $500 to Italy, which is now one of the weakest links in the European Union, with debts of 140% of GDP. That's their national debts alone, their mine corporate debt and regional debts, as well as its economy being in long-term decline. It was threatening to leave the EU, and nobody was in any doubt that it would enter a debt crisis, causing a European bank crisis and very possibly the breakup of the European Union. So an inducement is now offered to Italy to stay. Spain and Greece are thrown into this pot also. This is creating a transfer union by stealth federalisation, without permission of the members of the European Union or their electorate. Stealth means movement that is quiet, careful, planned and unnoticed. And federalisation in this context means growing control by the central government. Yet again, the treaties of the European Union are broken, democracy is flouted and the centre assumes more arbitrary power. This recovery fund started at 750 billion, was passed in March 2020 and was increased in June 2020 to 1.35 trillion, almost doubled. It bought huge amounts of sovereign, that is national and corporate debt, of the member countries. And this is in breach of Articles 123 and 125. Monetary policy is being determined by the sovereign or government debts of member states. But this debt is now being backed up by the ECB, the Central Bank of Europe, which is explicitly unlawful. This monetary policy is also determined by the fact that the European Union banks are very weak and are being continually propped up by QE, quantitative easing, this money creation by the central banks and pushed out to the other banks of the Union. These banks were not cleaned up after the 2008 crisis, unlike in America where many of them were. 
the toxic assets of that period, the 2008 period, have not been dealt with, but have been redefined so as not to appear problematic. This is an act of creative accountancy, to say the least. Plus, there are many decisions by the European Union which have further weakened the banks, such as low and now negative interest rates. There has been a succession of dangerous policies and wrong incentives. Weak countries issuing more debt is extremely dangerous. There is a massive sovereign debt bubble in the European Union and great banking fragility. It's widely recognised that the European Union banks are perhaps the weakest in the world. I have no doubt that the European Union leaders believe that unless the European unification project continues, Europe faces the abyss. They perceive anarchy and a return to even warfare and barbarism. A quick look at the 20th century history of Europe will leave one in little doubt about this. In addition, fascism, ethnic cleansing, concentration camps, mass killings and atrocities arose recently on European soil, though not in the European Union, in the 1990s, in the former Yugoslavia under the Serbian nationalist Milosevic and his henchmen. However, as the Prosperity Project, the central vehicle of the European Union's unification dream, falters in the post-2008-10 crisis, and now, with the Great Depression emerging in the 2020s, then the threat from member states to secede is increasing dramatically. The European Union government, instead of allowing countries to leave, attempts to maintain the European Union at all costs and accommodate these weaker members. To do this, it needs the power to impose conditions on the richer and less indebted parts of the European Union to subsidise the weaker members. Thus, it must break its own treaties and establish greater power for monetary and fiscal transfer, hence the term stealth federalisation, since even most economists don't realise how illegal or ruinous these policies are. Thus, populist and national resentments now coincide in these countries as they resent not only extra immigration but now the subsidies, transfers and shared debts which are unproductive, illegal and set very dangerous precedents of unlimited transfers in the future that can impoverish the more efficient countries. Italy is also in the unfortunate position of bearing the brunt of much of the immigration entering the European Union and is deprived of imposing its own immigration policy. This also enrages populist reaction within this country, despite the subsidies given. In a further podcast, I shall explain how it's the defence of the euro, the currency union, that is at the heart of the European authorities' strategy. Yet, the abandonment of the euro might be the only way of saving the European Union. To end, I should like to read a poem by W.B. Yeats, a great poet from the west of Ireland, which is where I and my ancestors are also from. It was written in 1919, 
at the end of World War I, in the middle of the first respiratory pandemic, the Spanish flu, which lasted from 1918 to 1920, and which had four great waves, which incidentally I suspect our present pandemic will also have, and which killed tens of millions of the European population. The poem presents the centre of a civilization disappearing and the confusion, hystericism and danger that follow. Mighty opposites are constellated, perhaps on the one hand a spiritual awakening, a second coming, or on the other, as Yeats suspects, a darkness will take over the central values of the Christian civilization that had finally torn itself to pieces in World War I. It is frightening how prescient and prophetic this poem was when one considers the rise of fascism and the evil shortly to unfold in Europe, Hitler as the Antichrist. This poem is one of the most quoted of our own times for reasons that are becoming clearer to us. Here it is. The Second Coming by W.B. Yeats Turning and turning in the widening gyre The falcon cannot hear the falconer Things fall apart The centre cannot hold Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world The blood-dimmed tide is loosed And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all about it reel shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. <laughs>